at times of hardship and difficulty, the mountains are your best friend, are your refuge. But also, you know, the other sort of bitter side of this story is that the Kurds have been really, uh, you know, betrayed by by both the international powers and also the regional po- the, the, the regional powers. I, I, I usually like to refer to the you know situation or the circumstances of the Kurds as some sort of a double colonial bind. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Gannon. The Kurds are a people without a country. They occupy large swaths of lands in Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Iran, but have no central government. Kurdish fighters have been constant allies in America's fight against ISIS, and Peshmerga troops fighting on behalf of the semi-autonomous Kurdish regional government in Iraq fought against the militants after they stormed Mosul. Without the help of Kurdish forces in Mosul, Raqqa, and across the Levant, America couldn't have defeated ISIS so handedly. In December, after a conversation with Turkey's president, President Donald Trump announced U.S. troops would be leaving Syria on grounds that ISIS was defeated. Then things got complicated. It's unclear if the withdrawal will actually take place. Turkey thinks the Kurds are terrorists, and the Kurds are caught between regional powers in one of the most complicated conflicts in the world. Here to help us sort this out and get the Kurdish perspective is Mohamed Salih. Mohamed spent years working as a journalist for international media in Kurdistan. He's currently a doctoral student at University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Mohamed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So really want to start with some really basic stuff for the audience here. Mohammed, uh, what is Kurdistan? Where is it? And who are the Kurds? Well, Kurdistan is uh, basically the land that has been historically populated by the Kurdish people. There are also uh, a number of other, uh, you know, ethnic and religious groups uh, who have been, you know, leaving or populating that region for a very long time. But uh, geographically, it is located uh, on the border areas between the states of Iraq, Iran, Turkey and Syria. And uh, the Kurds are generally referred to as the largest uh, nation or national group without a state of their own. And, you know, this has been uh, basically a result of the great power, uh, you know, dealings and agreements uh, following World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire as a result of that war. So... Uh, what happened uh, after World War One or the First World War was that uh, the British and French colonial powers divided the Ottoman Empire into a number of different uh, nation states. And there was supposed to be, as part of, you know, a series of agreements, there was supposed to be a Kurdish nation state as well. But, uh, you know, that did not happen. And so uh, the the result, the outcome of that was that the Kurds uh, have been divided among these four nation states in the region. And unfortunately, they have been uh, grossly uh, mistreated uh, by the governments of these states, you know, over the past century or so. Okay, well, 
so why do these regional governments, Turkey, Iraq, have so many uh, different ideas about who the Kurds are and where the territory sits? Yeah, well, the the primary, you know, the primary uh, reason why, uh, if your question is, you know, why uh, these states and their governments have not been treating the Kurds justly, uh, I think, you know, the primary reason really has to do with the very conception of the idea of the nation in these newly emerging, you know, nation states after the First World War. So uh, what what has happened is that uh, in, 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 in all of these countries and but particularly in places like uh, Turkey and Syria, the dominant nationalisms have been uh, sort of defined along very narrow lines and terms, and they have been effectively ethno-nationalist regimes uh, that have have seen Kurds, you know, uh, primarily as some sort of a threat uh, to the well-being, to the survival of their nation-state, of their uh, nation-state projects. And, uh, you know, this viewing of the Kurds as the other, as a threat to the survival of these nation states, uh, uh, as a threat to the survival of these nationalisms, has basically meant that these states uh, have not really refrained from any sort of means in order to uh, suppress the Kurds and to ensure that the Kurds would remain, you know, as a subordinate group within the borders of these uh, nation states. I think the clearest example of that and the one we've talked about on the show before is in Turkey, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. So in the case of Turkey, uh, you know, right from the beginning when uh, Ataturk uh, basically launched, uh, you know, his war of independence and later the, you know, the nation state of Turkey. Uh, well, at the beginning, he made some overtures to the Kurds and, you know, tried to uh, rally the Kurds around his uh, struggle for the independence of Turkey. Uh, mostly along religious lines, which was kind of, you know, the the common uh, identity thread between both the Turkish population and the Kurdish population uh, in the country, as, you know, both groups are largely uh, Sunni Muslim groups. But after the, you know, the state of Turkey, the Republic of Turkey uh, was established by Ataturk, uh, he basically, you know, backpedaled from uh, any promises of, uh, you know, of inclusion that he had given to the Kurds uh, prior to that moment. And uh, in the case of Turkey in particular, you know, there has been a very sort of uncompromising view of what the character of this nation state is and should be like. And so... Uh, the the Turkish uh, you know nation state has been a purely ethnic Turkish uh, or has been conceived as a purely ethnic Turkish uh, nation state that has meant that you know uh, every other group in that country and as we know you know that that country that the country that we call Turkey today has been historically a very diverse uh, you know uh, territory and land. But uh, with the with the establishment of the Republic of Turkey, uh, the state has been constantly, you know, on sort of uh, some sort of crusade or a campaign in, in various forms, military and, you know, cultural and uh, other forms as well to, to ensure the subordination. And in many cases, actually, the erasure of the. Uh, culture or or of the identity of these other non-Turkish groups uh, within the borders of that uh, nation state. 
and uh, you know they they have been pretty successful in a way in terms of uh, melting to a very large extent a lot of these other you know sort of rival identities into this uh, Turkish uh, national identity. But in the case of the Kurds, because you know the Kurds uh, constitute such a large uh, sort of you know portion of the population of Turkey, something around twenty percent. Uh, and, you know, there has been a sense of Kurdish national awareness uh, since the late Ottoman times. So it has not been really a very successful project as far as the Turkish, uh, you know, na nation state project has been concerned. They have not been really able to assimilate uh, or melt, you know, the Kurdish identity, identity into this newly forged uh, Turkish national identity. So, you know, there have been different rounds of uh, armed struggle and, you know, political struggle uh, by the Kurds uh, toward, you know, this sort of exclusionary vision that has been at work uh, within this nation state, uh, which is Turkey. There's a, there's a dream of a united Kurdistan. Uh, with what you've just said, with the, along with the how Turkey's kind of handling the, the Kurdish you know, positions and the Kurdish people. Is it possible in the future? Do you do you feel that there could be a united uh, Kurdistan? Well, it is very difficult to tell because of the very difficult uh, geopolitical circumstances uh, in the region and also because of the reluctance of the, you know, major world powers to recognize an independent Kurdish entity. Uh, like uh, a lot of people, when you know they they talk about Kurds or Kurdistan, would usually uh, you know say that the eventual dream is some sort of a united Kurdish state. But I think you know that is uh, not really necessarily the case. Uh, first of all, uh, because you know the Kurdish populations in each of these countries. Uh, have, you know, their own sort of particular characteristics, their own particular condition that, you know, they have been working with and struggling within. And not the aim of all these, uh, you know, Kurdish populations in each of these countries is even necessarily to establish an independent state, uh, you know, we like uh, that that would secede from that country, you know, let's say, for example, an independent Kurdish state that would secede from Turkey or an independent Kurdish state that would secede from Syria. Uh, the, the ultimate goal for the Kurds is really uh, the recognition of their cultural uh, and political rights, a recognition of their identity. And, uh, you know, and as long as the nation states, as long as the, you know, central governments or regimes within these nation states uh, are, you know, willing uh, to genuinely accept this and, uh, you know, to, to, to work with Kurds uh, as, uh, you know, as an important component of their states and allow them to enjoy cultural and political rights within, you know, within the territory that they uh, populate or occupy. I think that would be quite satisfactory, you know, to, to a lot of the Kurds. But the problem has been that, uh, you know, the policy, the attitude from these central governments has been really, by and large, one of denial or, uh, you know, just closal oppression. Uh, amounting to, you know, genocide or ethnic cleansing. So, you know, it, w within these kind of circumstances, uh, 
uh, the Kurds have been, uh, you know, naturally resisting and uh, uh, reacting to, you know, to to this kind of oppressive measures and, uh, you know, these really oppressive uh, policies of these central governments and regimes has really fueled, you know, the Kurdish desire uh, for, uh, you know, for for wanting to have some sort of of an entity, whether. Uh, you know, that is uh, in the form of an autonomous, genuinely autonomous entity within the borders of the nation states or, uh, you know, in the form of independence. So, uh, you know, having said that again, even if hypothetically, you know, the Kurds would be able to secede from these governments, from these states in each of the four countries, I think, you know, there are also some genuine differences among the Kurdish populations uh, that might not necessarily be conducive uh, to the creation of a united, independent Kurdistan. Uh, and I think, you know, that is fine. Uh, and, you know, there are like a lot of uh, other cases of like, you know, one nation sort of having, you know, sort of being uh, divided into more than one state, right? Uh, you have like a number, you know, uh, over 20 Arab uh, Arab states or, you know, even in, in, in cases like in Europe, you know, for example, you have Germany and Austria, which, uh, you know, share the same language more or less and, you know, uh, sort of uh, yeah. ethnically are, are pretty close or the same, but, you know, the, the, there is more than one nation state. So, uh, you know, that, that that would not be necessarily sort of, uh, you know, something that Kurds would not be happy with. But the most important thing, as I said, is really the recognition of the cultural and political rights. And there is more than one way to get there to achieve that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily in the form of the creation of a new nation state, of a new Kurdish nation state, although that would be ideal to many Kurds. Uh, if it did not, uh, you know, lead to a major regional conflict. Uh, but again, the, you know, the, the, the recognition of the political and cultural rights are really what the Kurds are after. Now, that's something, that's something more along the lines of what, how I dealt with and what I was exposed to. When I was in special forces, when I was in Iraq, I worked with very, very closely with uh, a lot of Kurdish soldiers within the uh, Iraqi Special Operations Command. We built rapport with them. Uh, you know, some of these guys I still actually actually talk to through some some form of social media. Uh, recently, you know, the, um, the American troops have kind of been given a withdrawal order. What's the general feeling? You know, especially with the Kurds in Syria and how do they feel about that withdrawal? Is is it something that they're taking personally or? Is is there an opinion left or right there and within the Kurdish population? In general, it has not been taken well at all, and there is a you know sense of uh, abandonment, if not betrayal, among many Kurds uh, toward the U.S. Uh, you know, this has been probably one of the most successful examples of uh, you know of a relationship between the U.S. and a local population, really, and uh, the, the Kurds have been you know, very uh, grateful and uh, happy for this, uh, you know, assistance and cooperation that they have gotten from the United States uh, in the fight against ISIS. 
But, uh, you know, things are not sort of on a path yet that the Kurds would feel secure enough, uh, you know, to be sort of to be acting on their own. So the news of the U.S. military, uh, you know, withdrawal or pullout from Syria has been really very worrying and concerning to a lot of Kurds. Uh, they, you know, uh, given the circumstances of the Kurds and given the general atmosphere of a lack of willingness, whether it's within Syria or the broader region and Turkey, you know, being such a major actor now in the Syrian affairs, uh, the, because of this unwillingness, this regional unwillingness to embrace the Kurds and uh, accept some sort of, you know, uh, genuine political status for the Kurds. Uh, many of the Kurds are very rightfully concerned, you know, that once the U.S. troops are out, that would actually uh, encourage uh, the Syrian government, backed by the, you know, by by Russian military and Iran on the one hand, and Turkey enjoying, you know, the uh, the support of the NATO and the protection of the NATO on the other hand, uh, trying to sort of bring an end uh, to the, you know, to the Kurdish-led political entity that has been sort of uh, established uh, in, in northern Syria since, to, you know, 2012, but particularly, you know, since the, uh, you know, their joining forces with U.S. military in beating back ISIS uh, in, in northern Syria. So it is in no way, uh, you know, uh, really good news to, to Kurds in Syria or to Kurds in general in the region. And uh, very interestingly, you know, uh, it's one of those things that uh, the Kurds across the board, no matter what their, you know, political or ideological differences otherwise, they agree on, you know, on on this, that, you know, that this is not a good thing and that, uh, you know, this is going to expose Kurds uh, to, you know, to the brutality of these regimes in the region. And uh, we already, I mean, you know, the, know how regimes like uh, the, the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad or, uh, you know, or Erdogan's really have been treating and dealing with the Kurds. Uh, in the case of, uh, you know, Erdogan and Turkey, for example, last year, right around this time, uh, you know, they conducted a military operation in Afrin region in northern Syria, which is a predominantly Kurdish populated region. And uh, what the Turks really did with the help of their uh, Syrian rebel allies, uh, you know, that have many jihadi groups among them, is that they have committed a larger scale ethnic cleansing of Afrin from the Kurds. So what they have done is basically, you know, expel the Kurds from their homes, take over their property and settle, uh, you know, Arab uh, refugees, uh, Syrian Arab refugees who, or, uh, you know, Turkmen refugees who moved to uh, Turkey or have been uh, displaced from the, you know, environs of Damascus and like settle these people in the homes and properties of the local, you know, Kurdish, Yazidi and uh, Christian populations of Afrin. So, uh, you know, th there is really no benefit of doubt that the Kurds can extend to uh, to Turkey or even to Syria, but, you know, probably to a much lesser extent uh, to Syria when it comes to you know, to, to, to dealing with these governments and regimes in the region, really. Who do you believe is the biggest threat to the Kurds in the region, both in Syria and Iraq? Who, who do you believe that did you you had mentioned jihadi groups working along with the uh, the pro-Assad uh, forces, correct? 
Well, no, the working along the uh, Turkish military in Afrin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would, uh, at the moment, the way that things appear, I think, you know, there is more or less a consensus among many Kurds, uh, you know, that Turkey probably poses the greatest threat in some ways. And I mean, it's a very complicated picture. I don't want to simplify it. Uh, You know, Turkey, for example, deals with the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq has, uh, you know, uh, relatively strong uh, economic ties in particular with them. Uh, But at the same time, uh, you know, there is this undertone of uh, animosity, uh, even in the case of Iraqi Kurdistan, you know, uh, that uh, that is coming out of Ankara. But in particular, uh, with regard to the Kurds in Syria and the Kurds in Turkey, uh, you know, the, the Turkish government has been very vocal and serious in a stating, you know, that it sees, you know, the Kurds in these uh, countries, the Kurdish political movements uh, as, you know, as a threat uh, to its national security. And now you can debate, you know, whether that's a fair and legitimate, uh, you know, sort of perception to have or not. But uh, also, given you know the fact that Turkey is a mem- is a member of the NATO and is the strongest of all the states in the region uh, that have Kurdish populations inside them, uh, Turkey definitely you know given its highly aggressive and uh, bellicose attitude and policies toward the Kurds, and also you know the sort of uh, the international. Uh, position that it enjoys, uh, you know, at the moment poses really the most serious uh, sort of threat to Kurdish ambitions in the region. And uh, even though, you know, uh, I mentioned that Turkey has been dealing with the Kurdistan regional government, there have been, you know, uh, very strong uh, economic relations and political relations to some extent as well, diplomatic engagement. But Turkish officials, including President Erdogan himself, have, uh, you know, said, uh, uh, like on a number of occasions, that uh, they do not really view, you know, a Kurdish entity anywhere in the region favorably. And that applies uh, to the Kurdistan region because they see any sort of, you know, success uh, of the Kurdish political movements in any of the states uh, as some sort of uh, threat to the, you know, to the territorial integri- integrity and national security uh, of their country. Uh, but, you know, as I said also, you know, this is something that is really debatable. And uh, if Turkey were to modify its, uh, you know, position, the way that it ideologically sees the Kurds, and if it were to, uh, you know, uh, to be willing to engage with the Kurds in the region, it could really gain and benefit much from, you know, having the Kurds on its side. And as I said, especially in the case of uh, Turkey and also Syria, the Kurdish political movements, there are not pursuing, uh, you know, a project of an independent Kurdish state. So, uh, you know, Turkey should welcome that, should embrace that and, you know, should try to accommodate Kurdish uh, political demands and aspirations. Uh, and, uh, you know, then that would really open the doors uh, to, you know, to extensive cooperation, you know, between Turkey and the Kurds, with, whether it's within Turkey or in Syria or Iraq, you know, or generally across the region. Do you see Turkey flexing to recognize the Kurdish regime? 
or at least give them political recognition? Do you see them leaning towards that? You mean in Syria? In Syria, yeah. Well, I mean, there have been some signals recently coming out of Ankara that, uh, you know, there is apparently, I don't want to say some sort of effort, but this idea has been floated, you know, that... Uh, a, a military campaign against Syrian Kurds uh, would not necessarily be, you know, successful for Turkey. And there seems to be some, uh, you know, serious concern within uh, Turkish military establishment, uh, like about this, which led uh, the Turkish president actually apparently to replace the two main the two main generals who were assigned with the task of a, you know, of a military operation into northern Syria because they had uh, voiced, uh, you know, a skepticism about the success of any such military campaign. So, uh, you know, this idea has been floated recently that maybe, you know, the best way to tackle this is to a uh, revive you know uh, the so-called peace process within turkey between uh, the turkish government and uh, you know the kurdish workers party which is the main you know kurdish political organization in turkey although it is you know an outlawed one in turkey and and you know so the idea is if uh, this peace process were to be revived and if uh, you know turkey and kurds mend fa- you know fences uh, that would smooth things uh, when it comes to Syria. And and if that happened, you know, that is quite likely that any serious rapprochement inside Turkey between the, the Turkish government and the Kurds or the Kurdish political movement in Turkey would really play a very important role in facilitating and understanding a positive, you know, relationship between Turkey and, uh, you know, the Syrian Kurdish political entity. So, uh, but, uh, you know, given the circumstances of uh, Turkey and the dynamics within, you know, uh, Turkish national politics, this is not also something, you know, that is easy to happen. It is not impossible. It could be achieved. It could happen. But, uh, the dynamics, especially, you know, the, the political dynamics within the, uh, you know, ethnic Turkish sphere in, in Turkey are such that, you know, any sort of aggressive or uh, bellicose policies toward, you know, the Kurds or, you know, the Kurdish political movement in Turkey is always, uh, you know, quite conducive uh, to the parties in power in terms of helping them, uh, you know, maintain uh, sort of their, you know, their status and and being able to, you know, to win votes and succeed in elections. And Erdogan has been doing, you know, quite a lot of that and pretty successfully over the past few years, as we have seen that, you know, usually around the time of any major elections in Turkey, whether it is, you know, the parliamentary elections or municipal elections or presidential elections, uh, you know, Erdogan has been uh, sort of uh, starting some sort of uh, military operation against PKK or Syria, you know, or, uh, you know, the, the Kurdish-led entity in northern Syria. And he, he has been able to use that to his advantage to win over, you know, uh, those sections uh, of the Turkish population who do not favor, you know, a, a sort of rapprochement or agreement with the Kurds. So it seems to be, even though... Uh, you know, uh, it, it's bad policy, so to speak, 
it's it's been really good politics for Erdogan, and he has been able to use you know this anti-Kurdish uh, sort of you know attitude and uh, policy to his advantage uh, within the sphere of uh, domestic Turkish national politics. Let me ask a, a dumb American question, uh, if I can. Well, they they say you know there is no dumb question. There can be only <laughs> dumb answers. I'll, well, let me ask an ignorant American question then. It seems to me that from the outside looking in, I know this is a really complicated conflict, but the Kurds were inst- the Kurds in various regions and in various uh, ways were instrumental in defeating a what what ISIS, which was a not just an existential threat but a direct threat to a lot of these regional powers. Did that not buy them any kind of political goodwill from any from anybody? Why does it feel like that didn't earn them anything? Well, I would say, unfortunately, no. And that, that's actually a great question. You know, one would think that given the prominent role that the Kurds have played in, uh, uh, you know, in defeating the Islamic State or, you know, the so-called ISIS, that you know that there should be some sort of change in regional attitudes both maybe at the popular level but also sort of at the more elite political level uh, but uh, at least when it comes uh, you know to the elite uh, political level we have not really seen that and that is again you know as i said it it, it goes back uh, to the very way that, uh, you know, these nation states in the region, no matter, you know, the change of government or the change of regimes, have by and large come to view Kurds as a threat to the survival of their own, you know, states or their own sort of, you know, uh, national projects. And unfortunately, you know, this very hostile view toward the Kurds uh, has been, you know, very sort of very much persisting, has been very resilient. And, uh, you know, has sort of transcended these, uh, you know, changes of, as I said, political regime or ideology, more or less. You you have to, you know, uh, to really uh, sort of uh, separate the state of Iraq from the other ones in this case, as at least, you know, in the last couple of decades or so, there has been sort of more flexibility from the Iraqi governments to, to a certain extent toward, you know, the Kurdish uh, question within their within that country. And there has been, you know, sort of a better understanding. But uh, generally speaking, broadly speaking, you know, the prominent role that the Kurds have played in defeating ISIS, uh, which, as you said, ha, you know, posed a very serious threat to the very existence uh, of these, you know, at least of the, you know, uh, the, the the political system and the state in, in both uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, you know, the, the central governments have not been really uh, willing to sort of use that to turn over a new page in their relations with the Kurds. And as I said, you know, as complicated as the Kurdish question is in the region and within the, you know, sort of boundaries of each one of these uh, states, each of these states, it is not something that cannot that cannot be solved. It actually, uh, you know, if if there was some sort of flexibility, if there was some, uh, you know, willingness to understand and to engage with the Kurds and uh, grant them, uh, you know, uh, 
some form of genuine political and cultural autonomy within the borders of these nation states, you know, that would uh, definitely, you know, uh, play a very important role in terms of easing, you know, the regional tensions uh, as far as, you know, the Kurds and the central governments in these states are concerned. But also it would really contribute great, uh, greatly to improving the relations between, you know, each one of these states. So, you know, the interstate relations, because, uh, you know, it has happened on multiple occasions uh, that the Kurdish question has been also a cause of uh, tension between, you know, the regional states. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, a genuine resolution of, uh, of the Kurdish question in the region within, you know, uh, each state would contribute a greatly to domestic stability within the borders of, uh, you know, those states, but also contribute uh, very significantly to improving interstate relations and really, you know, sort of unleashing this potential that these states have in terms of, uh, you know, development and progress and not using a lot of their resources to, you know, to suppress and oppress and ensure the subordination of the Kurds. There, there's been, a, we've, we've talked to us, uh, uh, some Syrians here on this radio, on, on the podcast here. And, it's it's the Syrian conflict. I'm going to say conflict is confusing to many people that are casually observing it. Initially, you know this the Syrian, the Syrian people that it started this thought it would be a revolution, not unlike their own Arab Spring that they saw in Egypt and in in the northern African countries. And once like the larger groups of folks got got together and got involved, such as Russia, um, Turkey, United States, and even uh, you know Kurdish factions. It seems to have most people can you know, kind of they hear the Syria they hear the Syrian conflict and they immediately assume it's about ISIS. Uh, how do you see the Syrian folks that were there at the initial onset of the revolution that's kind of metastas that metastasized into a civil war and has now kind of lost its revolutionary kind of base? How did how do the Syrians that are anti-Assad see Kurdish? Kurdish factions in the north and Afrin and elsewhere in Syria. How do they see them? Do they see them as them helping the revolution or are they just part of the problem? Well, I mean, you know, we have to make a number of distinctions here. First of all, as you said, you know, the what started in Syria in 2011 was a, you know, genuine popular uprising from a population uh, who was largely, you know, fed up uh, with a dictatorship running the country and, you know, robbing, off, uh, robbing them off of their potential and their resources, uh, you know, for a better future and for a more humane future. And, you know, uh, at, at that stage, uh, the, the protests were not only confined uh, to places, you know, to sort of the larger cities like uh, Damascus, Aleppo, uh, Homs or Hama. There were also quite, you know, substantial protests uh, happening in, in the Kurdish parts of Syria. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the way that, uh, you know, that uh, situation in Syria evolved. It uh, gradually moved from a peaceful, you know, uprising by the Syrian people of all, you know, different sort of ethnic or religious backgrounds 
uh, probably, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, so in the Alawi areas, uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, that that sort of peaceful uh, uprising really evolved into a, uh, you know, uh, conflict between the population and the, uh, the Assad regime. And of course, you know, the, the culprit for this was really the Assad regime and uh, you know their main backers, uh, who were you know were the the, the who were the Iranian uh, regime uh, at that point early on in the conflict. So they resorted to uh, violently suppress the protest, and gradually, you know, that uh, sort of extensive and brutal use of uh, violence, uh, you know, led to uh, you know uh, to the creation of. Uh, sort of an armed uh, resistance or, rebe or rebellion uh, among, you know, the ranks of protesters. And, you know, gradually, unfortunately, that, you know, that armed, or that armed rebellion came to be taken over by, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, jihadi Salafi groups uh, of the type, uh, you know, of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is affiliated with Al-Qaeda or, you know, later on ISIS. And so, you know, th th this uh, situation in Syria has to be really seen uh, in different stages and uh, each stage is really different, you know, from what uh, came before or after. So, but, uh, you know, unfortunately right now, uh, you know, at this point of time, what we have is that, you know, uh, that sort of initial uh, hope inspiring, you know, sort of movement that we saw in, in Syria in 2011 and to some extent, you know, uh, at the sort of uh, beginning of 2012 somehow, that is gone. What we now have or what, uh, you know, we, we sort of came to see later after, you know, that point with the takeover of the uh, Syrian uprising by armed groups that came to be dominated gradually by, uh, you know, Salafi jihadi groups that really, you know, espouse uh, very strict and exclusionary visions as to the future of Syria. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, so, sort of what has remained in terms of, uh, you know, armed groups of, of the Syrian uh, uprising, is that most of these groups today viewed the Kurds very negatively for a number of reasons. A, because, you know, the Kurdish, uh, or at least in the case of the uh, Democratic Union Party or PYD, which is the dominant uh, Kurdish party in Syria now, uh, because the PYD did not really engage the Syrian regime militarily that much, uh, you know, except like very short episodes of confrontation, the, these groups have come to, you know, uh, view the Kurds uh, pretty negatively. Uh, they see them as not having contributed, uh, you know, as much as they would like to, you know, to to the Syrian revolution, if you if you would like to call it that way. But uh, also, you know, there has been a huge ideology ideological gap uh, with the, you know, Islamization really of the, and given, you know, that the Kurdish uh, political groups in Syria, whether it's PYD or the others are really, you know, very strongly secular and uh, articulate and espouse, you know, very sort of a very secular vision for the future of the country. The, so, you know, the, 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 the gap 
you know that that has really deepened and broadened the gap between the uh, you know other uh, factions of the you know Syrian sort of the the armed factions of the Syrian uh, revolution uh and 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 the kurds so at this point of time what you have is that you know a lot of these armed uh, sunni arab groups in the country are allied with turkey which of course you know poses an existential threat to the survival and the future of the kurdish political entity in syria but uh, you know th these groups have been really also uh, not showing any attractive example in terms of, uh, you know, local uh, management and administration of the area that they have been uh, controlling. And by that, I mean, you know, the Syrian Sunni Arab Islamist groups. But contrary to that, what you have on the Kurdish side, uh, in basically in areas east of the Euphrates River, is that you have a quite inclusive political entity with a, uh, you know, markedly really secular character in the sense, you know, that unlike, for example, uh, areas in Idlib province that are, uh, or in Afrin, which are controlled by these uh, Islamist groups, you know, who are very serious about imposing the rule of Sharia, uh, in the Kurdish-held areas, you know, uh, th there is a very secular sort of arrangement uh, on the ground uh, where, you know, there isn't really any sort of Sharia being imposed on people. People are given the freedom in terms of, you know, exercising their religious beliefs. And also, it has been a very inclusive entity in terms of trying to absorb and accommodate the local non-Kurdish populations, you know, such as the Sunni Arab population, such as the Christian population or Turkmen population or Yazidi population. So, uh, you know, given that it has been operating, really, that it was a born and uh, sort of has been living under, you know, conditions of war. This political entity, you know, in, in, in northern or northeastern Syria that has been established and led by the Kurds has done a really great job in terms of becoming a safe haven for all sorts of, you know, ethnic and religious groups in the country. And a place where, you know, a lot of those uh, individuals and people who have been, you know, escaping both the brutality of the Assad regime, but also the brutality and the ideological strictness of the, uh, you know, Islamist groups in the rest of uh, Syria, the, 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 you know, the Kurdish-led uh, entity has been really sort of, you know, a, a haven, a home to, to all of, you know, these different types of people and groups. So... Uh, at this point, you know, the way that it is to sort of put it uh, very briefly, there seems to be a very major gap between the Islamist factions of the, uh, you know, Syrian uh, rebellion and the Kurds. Uh, and, uh, you know, th there has been a broad international recognition of the good work, of the good job that the Kurds have done, uh, you know, given their very limited resources and given the great, you know, strain and a stress of operating under a war. Uh, but, uh, you know, contrary to that, 
uh, the world also has really come to recognize that a lot of these other Syrian, you know, factions and uh, primarily the Islamist ones have really, uh, you know, not been able to espouse anything and any sort of vision that is attractive, A, uh, you know, to their own populations, but also to the outside world and quite to the contrary some of them such as you know Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIS uh, have become you know a global security threat and not only you know sort of confined within the borders of Syria or the region so you know the 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 at this point as I said the way that things are you know, the, the Kurds have come to uh, sort of uh, win a lot of support and recognition for the work they have done. And, you know, that has been really quite the opposite of what uh, a lot of the armed Syrian, you know, rebel factions have achieved. So I think that may be one of the most thorough answers we've ever gotten to any question on this show. I know, and he, I know, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I got one final question. So I recently heard a Kurdish saying, or what I've been told is a Kurdish saying, and I think that it kind of uh, sums up a lot of this, uh, and I wanted to just run it by you and, and, and get your thoughts, and if you can explain to the audience like why it's important. And the way I heard it told to me was that the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so, uh, you know, that's a, a quiet sort of famous, uh, you know, Kurdish saying, at least to the Kurds themselves. So, and, you know, the, this is basically a saying that is born out of the very difficult uh, conditions uh, or circumstances uh, of the Kurds, you know, uh, whether it's over the past century or before, but especially over the past century, you know, where the Kurds have been subjected to, as I said, you know, highly oppressive, highly brutal uh, policies from the central governments of the states that they were sort of forced to be part of. And, you know, there has been sort of this constant uh, state of rebellion, whether political, but very often also armed rebellion. Uh, by the Kurds uh, toward the central governments and the states, uh, you know, that they've uh, sort of come to become part of. And so, you know, that saying basically uh, sort of comes from that sort of background and history where the Kurds have uh, taken refuge uh, in the mountains and, you know, the vast majority of Kurdistan, the the greater Kurdistan, whether in Iraq, in Syria, not Syria so much, in Iraq, Turkey and Iran are, you know, very mountainous. And so, uh, you know, these mountains have been always a home for uh, Kurdish, you know, revolutionaries and rebels. And uh, so, you know, that, that saying basically comes from that bitter experience that, A, at times of hardship and difficulty, the mountains are your best friend, are your refuge, but also, you know, the other sort of bitter side of this story is that the Kurds have been really, uh, you know, betrayed by by both the international powers and also the regional po- the, the, the regional powers, uh, and you know I, I would I, I I usually like to refer to the you know situation or the circumstances of the Kurds as some sort of a double colonial you know bind that the Kurds are in 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 a double colonial bind, and what I mean by that is that. 
you know, first of all, after the First World War, the, uh, you know, the European uh, Western colonial powers, uh, Britain and uh, France, they uh, refused to, uh, you know, to recognize and help Kurds achieve an independent state of their own. And uh, after, you know, that happened and the Kurds were forcibly made part of these other states uh, with the blessing of the Western colonial powers, it, that really these, you know, these uh, nation states that emerged in uh, early 20th century, they have also objected the Kurds uh, to a, you know, new colonial relationship whereby, uh, you know, historically they have been, you know, uh, taking the resources of the Kurdish areas, you know, whether it's like oil and gas or other minerals, uh, and, and have been using these to really build uh, or help build their, you know, war machinery, which they have also used again to suppress the Kurds and, and you know, uh, force key to force Kurds to stay part of their estates. So, uh, you know, that that condition of uh, double colonial bind has been really going on, you know, for a century, uh, ever since, you know, the, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the establishment of the modern nation states in the region. And that bitter historical experience has meant that, you know, generations of Kurds have been living in, you know, in a states of conflict and warfare vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the, the central governments. And these central governments have done, you know, very often, uh, you know, the best that they could in terms of uh, brutally suppressing uh, any sort of Kurdish movement for, you know, for political and cultural recognition. And uh, so, you know, to to sort of put it in a nutshell, th that saying is really born out of a, you know, of, of, of that kind of history. Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about this. I appreciate that too, and I hope it was good. That's all this week, War College listeners. Thanks for tuning in. War College is me, Matthew Galt, Derek Gannon, and Kevin Nodell. It was created by me and Jason Fields, who's lost somewhere in space and time. If you like the show, please like and subscribe to us on iTunes, leave a review, it helps others find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. Next week, we've got a close look at how an Air Force base in the Hollywood Hills helped shape America's perceptions of the Cold War. We'll see you then.